Welcome to Crosswords, the podcast about practical Christianity. What does it look like to walk in Jesus' footsteps? How do I live in a culture hostile to godliness? These are questions that we will answer as we get our minds and heart on Jesus. I am blessed to be with you on this first day of the week. This is a long Friday that we've been looking at, the Friday that started very early in the morning with the trials of Christ that we spoke about last week. And we know that even prior to those trials, Jesus had a very anxious night praying in the garden. He was not able to sleep. And that was a terrible beginning for that Friday. This Friday would be the darkest Friday the universe ever saw, marked by that period of darkness that Mark just told us about. God's son was humiliated, rejected, and killed. Jesus was living the very parable he had taught them about, the parable of the tenants that went on like this. When the workers saw his son, they said to one another, this is the heir, let's kill him and get his inheritance. And they grabbed him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those workers? And they answered, he will destroy those evil people. Even the Jews acknowledged those people were evil. Then he will lease his vineyard to other workers who will give him his share of the produce when it's ready. Jesus asked them, have you, ever, have you never read in the scriptures a stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord is responsible for this, and it is amazing for us to see. That is why I can guarantee that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce what God wants. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken. If the stone falls on anyone, it will crush that person. We have been covering in great detail all that happened to Jesus this last week of his life. This is one of the most detailed historical accounts ever written of a person and ever written in the ancient era. We have tons and tons, thousands of manuscript evidence, more than any other historical event that mankind has written about. I wonder why God allowed that to happen. He wants us to know in great detail what his son went through. John even goes on to say, after he finishes writing, his eyewitness account the Gospel of John, including what Jesus did when he was raised, he says, Jesus also did many other things. If every one of them were written down, I suppose the world wouldn't have enough room for the books that would be written. So what we have is but a small part of all that happened. John was there and he saw all these things and there was more to the story. We just got what God thought was necessary. So we're going to talk today about that journey to the cross on the way to Calvary. And we can start with the procession. That's the part after Jesus received his lashes, preparing him for the crucifixion. Then he goes on and reads here in Luke chapter 23, verse 26 to 33. As the soldiers led Jesus away, they grabbed a man named Simon who was from the city of Cyrene. Simon was coming into Jerusalem and they laid the cross on him 
and made him carry it behind Jesus. Our large crowd followed Jesus. The women in the crowd cried and sang funeral songs for him. Jesus turned to them and said, you women of Jerusalem, don't cry for me. Rather, cry for yourselves and your children. The time is coming when people will say, blessed are the women who couldn't get pregnant, who couldn't give birth, and who couldn't nurse a child. Then people will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. If people do this to a green tree, what will happen to a dry one? To others who were criminals were led away to be executed with him. So this procession not only included Jesus, but the other two criminals. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him. The criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. As we can see here, this procession was led by a Roman centurion, probably a guard who was in charge of the soldiers that were carrying it or taking Jesus and the other criminals on this procession, probably to also ensure that the criminals made it to the place that they wouldn't escape from this uh, place of carrying the cross. It was designed to be a public humiliation, remember. So as criminals were led through this way in Jerusalem, it was for people to see them, to jeer at them, or, or, or any other thing to make them feel humiliated. It says here that Jesus was carrying the cross, but let me explain what that really meant. The cross consisted of a horizontal beam called a patibulum and a vertical beam called the stipes. Now, if somebody were to carry that entire contraption, they probably couldn't because it would probably weigh more than 500 pounds. The stipes, which was the vertical beam, was very strong and very tough and very high, and it typically remained there at the place of the crucifixion. So what the criminals would carry would be the horizontal beam, or the patibulum, as it is known, and this weighed between 75 to 125 pounds, quite a lot. And for Jesus, who had already been through an anxious night, who already had been mocked, who already had been flogged, no wonder he fell down three times trying to carry this piece of wood, and someone had to help him carry it through. This shows, again, points to the vulnerability that Jesus had. He was fully man, and he was in a most vulnerable condition. Jesus stumbled three times under the weight of the cross, probably due to exhaustion. The, the stripes or the whipping that he had endured caused a lot of blood loss, severe blood loss. It would probably induce some kind of a shock and some kind of an exhaustion, which is why probably he was having trouble carrying this cross. He had been up since the day of the Passover. He had been beaten, slapped, whipped, pounded on the head with a staff while wearing a crown of thorns, mocked, insulted, interrogated, cursed out. He was a man who bled as we do, as Pilate himself exclaimed, behold the man. He was a man. And he probably got emotionally exhausted from all that. Of course, physically exhausted. And the spiritual exhaustion was just beginning, as Mark pointed out in the Lord's Supper lesson. Much is written, as John says, about all this suffering, about his emotional state of suffering as well. But we're not able to witness the spiritual suffering. All, at best, what we can do, as Mark presented, is put these scriptures together and try to wrap our heads around, wow, what would it have meant to carry the weight of the sins of the world, not just of the present, 
but past and future. It's something that we can't really comprehend. And so there was another dimension to the suffering of Christ on the cross that probably we will never comprehend. And because God doesn't want us to carry that burden. He doesn't want us to understand or to know. As a good father, he took it on himself. We know Simon was present. He was just a passerby that the Romans forced to help carry the cross. This is symbolic. Think of, think of yourself. Think of we as a church. Because we are the body of Christ on earth, to an extent, we're carrying that cross, aren't we? Aren't we all called as disciples to carry our crosses? Aren't we like Simon physically did? He physically intervened on that day and physically helped Jesus carry his cross. But we are doing so in our walk as Christ in this realm, in this physical realm. The, the body of Christ is weak, is vulnerable, subject to great suffering. But Christ's body now in the realm to come is powerful, is victorious, and is joyful. It would have been very humiliating for someone to be associated with a criminal carrying a cross. The law even called it a curse. Think about how Simon must have felt to be singled out from the crowd and to participate in this very humiliating exercise, carrying the cross for a condemned man. But I tell you, after all that Simon witnessed that day, it was probably a life-changing event captured very neatly in some of the movies uh, that have been done after that. The way of the cross, often known as La Via Dolorosa, is the way from the courts of Pilate all the way out to Golgotha, which lied outside of Jerusalem. We don't know the exact path. If you go to Jerusalem nowadays, they show you La Via Dolorosa and they tell you all the different stations of the cross that Jesus went through. We call that the traditional path, but we really don't know. We know that Jesus did interact with some people. He was heavily guarded so that people wouldn't try to do something to him. The guards were there trying to keep the people away. But there was some interaction from what we read here in Luke, from what he said to these women. He told them, don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves and for your children, because the time is coming when people will say, blessed are the women who couldn't get pregnant, who couldn't give birth, who couldn't nurse a child. People will say to the mountains, fall on us, to the hills, cover us. If people do this to a green tree, what will happen to a dry one? Who was the green tree? Wasn't Jesus the green tree? Wasn't Jesus the green tree? And Jesus said, if they do this to a green tree, what are they going to do to a dry one? Referring to Jerusalem, who had long ago dried out and was not producing the fruit that God expected. His point was simple. And in a way, he was prophesying what the Romans would do to Jerusalem some uh, 30 years later, 30 to 40 years later. In AD 70, the procession finally arrives at the place of the skull, otherwise known as Golgotha. In English, we call it Calvary. Well, actually, that's the Latin, Latin Calvary, Hebrew Golgotha, the place of the skull. Because if you look at the place there, the rock there, the rock formation, you can actually Google some of the photos 
and it looks like a skull. You can kind of see the two eyes and like a mount that kind of looks like a skull from far away. So they get there. It was outside of the walls of the city and it was next to a very well-traveled road. So it was a very public place. Again, the executions were intended to be public, to put to shame the prisoners and to put some fear into the hearts of the people so that they could know, oh man, look, look, this is what happens if you commit such and such a crime. The crime was typically nailed to the top of the cross so that people could see why was this person condemned. And so the crucifixion begins. Let's read about that here in Mark 15, 23 through 29. They tried to give him wine mixed with a drug called myrrh, but he would not take it. Next, they crucified him. Then they divided his clothes among themselves by throwing dice to see what each one would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. There was a written notice of the accusation against him. It read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by insulted him. They shook their heads and said, what a joke. You were going to tear down God's temple and build it again in three days. As you can see, there were two other criminals there with him. Uh, and there's only one sentence. Uh, most, of, most of the gospel writers just say, and they crucified him. Next, they crucified him, as we read, as we read here. Only one sentence, and they crucified him. People knew what that meant 2,000 years ago. That's why they didn't get into the gory details. But I will present some more details for you because we're far removed from that kind of practice. And if you've ever seen some of the recent movies, particularly The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, it kind of presents those gory details to you of what it entailed to endure a crucifixion in Roman times. First, this happened, uh, they stripped the clothing off the prisoners. They were naked hanging on a cross. They didn't have any clothing on. And that was to maximize the humiliation that they were going through. Notice here that they were offered a drink made out of sour wine and gall, or wine mixed with myrrh, some would say. And that was a mild analgesic. And the point of that was not because the Romans had mercy and wanted to make their suffering more palatable, not at all. They actually wanted to dull your senses a bit so that you would suffer more, so that you would spend more time awake in this excruciation. By the way, the word excruciating comes from the Latin suffering out of the cross or out of the cross, excruciation, when we use that word. The prisoners themselves were then stretched after they were stripped of their clothing and given this wine mixed with gall. They were stretched onto the beams as the patibulum was affixed to the stipes. They were affixed to these beams using seven to nine inch spikes. And notice here from this drawing that we have that I present up there, that the spikes were not put through the hand as some may typically think. Because if you put a spike through your hand and then you get lifted up on a cross, you're just going to fall off because there are no bones here to hold it together. So they put the, the spike right between the ulna and the radius, right here where you have a big nerve called the ulnar nerve or the median nerve that goes to your hand. And so when a person was, when their hands were nailed, they would get this claw-like 
figure of their hand, as, as you can see from the illustration, because of the pressure of the nail going through that nerve. And the pain was felt all over the body, to the head and down, as that nerve was punctured. Then the spikes through their feet, they were lifted up with ropes to put the stipes and a slot in the ground. And then their feet were affixed slightly askew so that they were not straight, like, but their knees were slightly bent. And I'll tell you later on why. The spikes that went through the feet were a little longer. And the feet, basically almost all your weight really was distributed between that spike on your feet and the spikes on your hands. Sometimes what they would do, we don't know if they did this for Jesus, they would include in the cross something called the sedil or what it means, a seat. And it wasn't really a seat for you to, to sit on and be comfortable, but it was actually a pointed stick so that in case you wanted to get comfortable, that would drive itself in your back so that there was no way for you to try to get comfortable while you were there. And so this created a situation, as Mark was alluding to in his lesson, where it was very difficult for you to draw a breath while you were crucified. Extremely difficult to speak. Because the crucifixion, since you were hanging on your arms to draw breath, you couldn't get yourself up enough to draw a full breath. You literally had to push on that spike driven between your feet, push yourself up, and you can imagine the pain that that would cause you, or pull yourself up from the spikes to draw a breath. But as you did that, you had that point in the back. And remember that the back is all torn to shreds from the flogging. As your back is scraping against that piece of wood, the stipes nailed onto the ground. So it was a whole event. So even just to draw one breath. And typically people would die from asphyxiation because you couldn't just breathe anymore or the breaths were so shallow. And what happens when you're breathing very shallow is your lungs get eventually filled with liquid. And so from asphyxiation, they would die, meaning drowning, you drown in your own liquids, which explains why when the soldier was trying to verify if Jesus had died and he thrust the spear to the side, there came out water and blood. And that water was an indication that his lungs were filled with water. What types of crosses were there? There were a few types of crosses. The Romans had, perfect, had perfected this method of execution. Uh, Jesus came at a time when it was the most perfected. There was the Tau cross or the capital T cross which looked just like a capital T. That's the one we think Jesus must have typically been crucified on. There was also the lowercase T that looks more like your traditional cross. There was also an X-shaped cross that was used at times. And there was a sign placed, the sign, I don't know if you can see it uh, there too clearly, but the sign was written in Hebrew and Latin and Greek, the three main language is Hebrew because it was the language of the Jews, Latin because it was the language of Roman law, and Greek, well, Greek was like English back then. It was the language everyone spoke. And the sign read, Jesus, the Nazarene, 
king of the Jews. The chief priest had objected to that sign. They didn't want that sign. He says, don't put the king of the Jews. He says, he said he was the king of the Jews. But Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. And he refused to change that. So rightly so, he was crucified for being the king of the Jews. That's precisely what he suffered for. If you like this podcast, please show your support by clicking on the support link on my Anchor FM profile. You will find the link listed in the description of the podcast on your favorite podcast app. With your support, I will continue to produce authentic Christian content as the Lord allows me to do. It was nine in the, in the morning when they crucified him. Crucifixion had been used by many nations. It was not something only the Romans did, but the Romans nailed it down to an art. They designed it to produce a slow death with a maximum amount of pain and suffering. And see, this was because no vital organ was affected during the whole process of crucifixion. So a victim could live for days and they typically were left hanging for days until they succumbed to asphyxiation, torture, fever, thirst. Sometimes birds would come and start eating their eyes or eating their face or their mouth. Insects would come. The hardest part of it all was to breathe. But we know that for Jesus, since the next day was a Passover, the Romans would then, because the Jews didn't want to leave the bodies up there, they would kill them. And how would they do that? Well, they would take a club and break the legs of the prisoners. And that's what they did for the thieves that were on Jesus' side. They broke their legs. So when you have your legs broken, now you can't take a breath. Now you, you've accelerated the process of asphyxiation. But when they came to Jesus, what happened? He had already given up his life. And so since the centurion who was there witnessing that saw how that happened, think about this. Here we have a Gentile person who's not a Jew and their experience, they know what goes on in a crucifixion. They know how people die. They're experts in death. But something about the way Jesus died made him a believer. You think about that. Think about that because Jesus says that he gave up his spirit and this centurion had never seen anything like that before and he said surely this was the son of god and we have a testimony from him as well so we have but a small window here into the torture that the son of god endured on our behalf why do they call it good friday you ever thought about that because it was certainly good for no one on that day or anyone who has a shred of decency but it was good for us, wasn't it? It was good for us because without Jesus subjecting himself to this, there would be no atoning sacrifice for our sins. We would still be in our sins. We would still be doomed. And as Paul says, might as well eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we will die. We look back, and now when we say Good Friday, 
we can be very thankful that God had this plan out for it and that Jesus said, I will do it. Because he could have called 10,000 angels, right? If we think it was good, then it would be good for us as Christians who walk in these footsteps of suffering to surrender to the suffering that comes from being a Christian in this wicked world. Then when we suffer at times because of what we believe and we deny ourselves or we share the gospel or we're ostracized or whatever else you may go through, don't forget to call that good if you call that Friday Good Friday. Because it's because of that Good Friday that you're privileged now to have an awesome and great eternal life. What are some of the reasons why we suffer on this realm? Well, I think that one of the most important reasons why we suffer as Christians is because we're not giving in to our passions. We're not compromising our morality or our purity. As Paul told the Thessalonians, we maintain ourselves pure as a mark of devotion to Christ. So we don't indulge in the passions of the world, particularly the sexual immorality, which this world does so frequently. Because that's our mark of devotion to the Lord. And that will cause suffering. <laughs> but it's a good suffering, isn't it? It's a good suffering like it was a good Friday. Don't forget that. It's so much easier to give in and become like the world. There is no suffering when you give in. But there will be great suffering in the next round, though. That's what you have to remember. When we resist the devil, as James says, the devil will flee. And James encourages us to draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. We join Jesus and continue on with the suffering that his body, the church, has to continue to endure. As Paul says in Colossians 1.24, he says, I'm happy to suffer now. In my body, I am completing whatever remains of Christ's suffering. So Paul understood that through the Spirit, that it is for us in this body, on this side of heaven, to suffer as the body of Christ. To wear a crown of thorns. To walk down a Via Dolorosa. To carry our cross. Because you can't wear a crown until you wear the crown of thorns. In the same, in the likeness of our Savior. So the first step into this new life. This new way that Jesus opened up for us with his body. is a physical surrender is a recognition that this body can't be in control anymore. This body is the cause of, of my troubles, <laughs> this heart, and I have to surrender it to Christ. And we call that baptism. That's what the Bible calls baptism. A baptism is a reenactment of what Jesus went through. We die with Christ. Thankfully, we're not crucified on a cross. But we die with him. We're buried with him. And as Jesus was raised on the third day, when we come out of that watery grave, we're raised in newness of life. And so we begin carrying a cross <laughs> until, until this body perishes. And so we begin that walk, that walk to the cross 
It's a life of physical surrender, but of spiritual strength. We surrender our wills by being baptized. That's the first step of obedience, dying to the flesh, dying to our wills. And sometimes it's a process. It's difficult to endure, just like it's difficult to carry a cross. It's a process. And you might fall down like Jesus did. And you might need somebody to help you carry the cross as Jesus needed help to carry the cross. It is a process as we learn to surrender to God's will. But since we are born again at this point, born from above, born from the spirit, that new birth, that spirit, that renewed soul now continues to grow and be strengthened. And it becomes our identity as the flesh wanes and wanes and becomes weaker. Brothers, sisters, and friends, if Jesus' death has any meaning to you, consider making him your Lord and Savior by becoming his disciples. Only real men and women should consider this, though, because it's not for the faint of heart. I just gave you a little bit of the details of Jesus' crucifixion, but I cannot even begin to tell you the emotional and spiritual toll that it took on him and that it will take on us as we walk in his footsteps through this life. But one thing is for sure, Jesus says, I will be with you to the very end of the age. And he has given us a gift to help us endure that. And it is the Holy Spirit whom you receive when you decide to make Jesus your Lord and Savior. But only real men and women will find their true fulfillment in this and will surrender with joy in this watery grave of baptism, knowing that their life, their real life, is just beginning at that point. God bless you. Have a good afternoon.